beginning, she gave me things. Perfect balance, perfect sleep. Oh, she wants to get inside of me. I can feel her. Oh, she can see me. My brothers, my sisters. The clock is ticking faster. My dream, we who live for truth, for love. The moment has come to take our rightful place in the world where we wizards were free. Join me. Or die. You know, I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. Hello and welcome to the Electric Shadows podcast with me, your host Rob Daniel, editor of electric-shadows.com. As always, I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my resplendent co-host, Mr. Rob Wallace. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I like it when you say that. This is our 52nd episode, so you probably said that at least 40 times. We have mixed it up a few times. Anyway, we can't ramble on this one. You'll be very, very sorry to hear, because it is half past midnight, and we've just seen, well, about an hour ago or so... Half past the witching hour. Half past the witching hour. And we are talking about The Crimes of Grindelwald, the latest film in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them franchise, or The Witching World, is it? The Wizarding World. The Wizarding World. The newly rebranded Wizarding World. Warner Brothers Wizarding World. So this is the Rowling verse, isn't it? Wizarding World, which comes up at the beginning of the film. So that's what we need to call it now. And it's not actually Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, is it? It's, it's Fantastic I Beasts. Just, I think they've just shortened it to Fantastic Beasts, because otherwise it'd be Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find them, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Well, that's good. It means you don't have to type as much. So, yes, we will be talking about that in a little bit. And, to stay on a theme, we will be talking about the new version of... Suspiria. Yeah, one film which is, of course, about uh, a magical school. The other film which includes um, child death, multiple child death, and rape. The first film being Suspiria, the second being Fantastic Beasts. Yes, for a 12A movie, Fantastic Beasts does have a couple of very dark moments and suggestions in there. Which we will get onto, we will get onto that. But yeah, I was quite surprised by the darkness in that film. Quite a bit to unpack in that movie. First of all, uh, this is Friday the 16th of November, so we have to mention the sad passing of Stan Lee on Monday of this week. He was 95 years old, he had an extraordinary life, so it is just good that the world had Stan Lee for 95 years, but it is still sad that he yeah, passed. It's one of those when I sort of clicked on, I was on, I clicked on IMDb for some reason, it's the first thing I saw, I was like, no. And again, you're 95 years old. Not a tragedy by any stretch, but it's genuinely sad. You know, he's such a beloved figure in pop culture and had such a hand in shaping it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You've hit it on the head there. It's sad, not a tragedy, but it is one of those things where you kind of, again, expected him to be around a little bit more. It would have been Excelsior if it had hit 100. Has anybody actually ever set a trend in ter- in the way that he's done in terms that in, in our, at least in our lifetime for pop culture you talked about J.K. Rowling a few minutes ago but that was one specific 
yeah. you know, franchise. Whereas Stan Lee, obviously, you know, Marvel being his main, but that's it's spread through everything. Absolutely. I think the thing with Stan Lee is that I used to read Spider-Man comics in the 80s and Secret Wars and used to enjoy them both. And Stan Lee, I just thought, who is this Stan Lee person at the beginning who's always doing the intros to these things? And is it a real person? And Stan Lee, is that his real name? Of course, it was Stan Lee Lieber. But it was he was someone that, for years, it was just a name who would do the intro in the comics I was reading. And then you find out that he's actually, yes, he's a real guy, and actually he seems to be quite a nice chap. And he's, he's... he also kind of invented... I, mean, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things where, of course, DC had an impact on comics as well, but they haven't really got a Stan Lee. And I think because... Because Marvel had a person, well, you kind of say, "Well, he is the godfather of modern." Yeah, we associate so many of the things like superheroes having alliterative names. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, and and he was yeah in himself such a wonderfully you know, avuncular presence. And superheroes having real issues, and not just being aliens or being rich, but having to pay the rent and things like that. Dealing with social issues, and the Fantastic Four being um, a commentary on the Kennedys during the sixties, and the X Men, of know. course, being a big thing about civil rights and racism. Yeah, of course, he was one of the great storytellers. I was quite lucky to see him at Comic-Con back in 2014. Our friend Adrian was just lovely um, and took me along. He had a spare ticket and it was great to be in the room with Stan Lee. And he was doing all the greatest hits. He was saying about the time he invented Spider-Man and the dash between the spider and the man and all the things you kind of heard before. But it didn't matter because it was... I wish I got to tell a story about something like the time I invented Spider-Man. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's like, I'm just happy that I can get a, to tell the story about the time that I saw Stanley talk about the time he invented Spider-Man. And yeah. now I get to tell the story about the time you told the story about the time Stanley told the story about the time he invented Spider-Man. And... Now you get Next to hear. I'll be able to tell the other. Yes, and you guys get to all talk about this story. That's right. Yes. Hello. 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 <laughs> so yeah, it was um, <laughs> the circle of life. It was a really good hour and a bit, and he was really frail when he walked up the steps onto the stage. As soon as he sat down, he just came to life and was just telling all these stories. And it was again, it's one of those things when people were asking him questions, and of course, people were like just in awe of the fact they were asking Stanley a question. He was absolutely lovely with the way that he was answering. He'd obviously been asked these all these questions before, but was saying, well, "That's a great question. That's a great question. That, oh, that's a great question." Oh. It reminds me of the time that I'm in Spider Man. I'm in You've said that one already, Stan. Um, oh, we're here again. <laughs> What's your favourite cameo from a, from a Marvel film with Stanley? I do like him in Spider-Man Homecoming. I think it's Spider-Man Homecoming, the one where he's... Oh, God, I hope it's not one of the amazing Spider-Man films. The one where he's just in the library cleaning up as the, as the big battle's going on. Is that Amazing Spider-Man? That's the Amazing Spider-Man, and I was going to say that one as well. That is not a good film. No. The Amazing Spider-Man is I think boring. I, just, I think it's a good scene, so I immediately associate it with a better film. Absolutely, yeah. I That is my favourite one. He's the music teacher, isn't he? Yeah. He's yeah, listening to the music, and isn't he conducting as well or something, and, uh, and there's this massive fight going on behind him. God, that is so ace. But there's so many great ones. What's the one where he's Hugh Hefner? I was like, is that going to be one of the Iron Man films? I think it is, because it's... And isn't it the one where he gets pissed, he drinks like a shot of something or other, like uh, like Asgardian mead, or... Oh, and yes. He gets, and he just gets legless. Or when he tries to pick up Thor's hammer using the pickup truck. That's right, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great one in Thor. Or in Doctor Strange. When he's Did I do on, it? When he's just on the bus, <laughs> and with all the reality warping going on around him, with all the portals and the shifting dimensions. And what's he reading? Uh, mate, was it? Was it? Was it? Yeah, the doors of perception. Where was that, was and he's laughing at it as he's reading it. So brilliant! Or oh, the one where he drinks the contaminated orange juice in, in uh, the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, which is a really good one as well. Is it Deadpool? Where is 
he's the DJ in a strip club. That sounds that sounds on brand. <laughs> which, Apparently, which he has off. recorded his cameos for at least the next couple of films. Well, for like for like Captain Marvel and for the next Avengers. So. Yeah, I was thinking he must have done it because I know that he that he'd done it for Infinity War two. I'm thinking, well, Captain Marvel would be and yeah. the, and the Deadpool recut they're doing for Christmas. Once upon a Deadpool will be clearly be dedicated to him now. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Oh, there was one other one that I thought was funny. I can't. No, sorry, it's one in Spider-Man Three when he just gives a little bit of worldly wisdom to Peter Parker when they're standing in Times Square and then says, "Well, enough said," which was his sign-off. Oh, actually, no. There's another great one in. <laughs> we said we would keep this tight today. There's another great one in. I think the underrated Fantastic Four: The Rise of the Silver Surfer, where they, they he is trying to get into their wedding. And it's taken from the comic and a panel of art where he is trying to get into their wedding, but he's been blocked. And the person with him is the artist. And it's actually the artist in the film oh. as well. That's really nice. I can't think of the artist's name. Sorry. But anyway, it's Stanley. And there was one of the... Oh, the one at the end of Guardians 2, when he's with the wise old men of the universe. Well, he's with the Eternals. The Eternals, that's it, yeah. yeah. And he says, no, I've still got so many stories to tell. And I oh. thought, that is lovely. Needs to be in a much better film. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, so rest in peace, Stan Lee. Thank you for all the wonderful stories and heroes you gave us. So, moving on to that magical school that hasn't got the child death in it, Suspiria, which is the new film by Luca Guadagino, Guadagnino, who did come by your name, and as regular listeners of the podcast will know, was a film that I had written off before I'd seen it, because it's Suspiria. How can you remake Dario Argento's masterpiece, Suspiria, a singular movie, a singular vision, the finest horror film ever made? <laughs> and, um, and I just, yeah, was not looking forward to this at all. I thought it was going to be terrible. I thought it was going to trash the original. So... Imagine my surprise when I saw it, courtesy of Adrian at BAFTA. Thanks, Adrian. Another shout out there. Um, really liked it. Thought that the two and a half hours was great. There's only one thing that I just didn't get on with that we'll talk about in just a minute. But um, yes, I thought it was very good. And the story is about um, a ballet student called Susie Banyan, played by Dakota Johnson from the Fifty Shades movies who goes to Berlin during the 70s, so when the wall is up, and it's in a divided Germany, to study at the Tanner Academy, is it? Yeah, I think so. I should know that. Anyway, but unbeknownst to her, it is run by a coven of witches, and strange things begin to happen within. So, everyone knows that I quite like the original Suspiria. What did you think of the remake? It was, while remaining, I think, essentially loyal to the spirit of the original, it's very much his own thing. You know, the settings and the characters were the same to a degree, but Guadagnino, sorry, we're both going to struggle with that, yeah. um, clearly had his own themes and things that he wanted to project on that canvas. Like, as you say, it's set, it's set in Berlin, there's the wall right outside the academy, and the film is very interested in the idea of um, how people do commit atrocities in the name in, because of certain beliefs or ideologies, and and the idea of factionalism, mm. it's this is a film that has a lot of themes in it. And Dario Argento's film is just about adrenalized panic. Um, I think he said that the what is it? He said that the the temperature of fear is something like 150 degrees Fahrenheit or something like that. He said he wanted to turn it up to 200. 
it's all about a weird nightmare logic. And there was a story to it, but it is one of those things where this is just about the sensation of fear, but a fear, like a wonderful fear, that the lurid vibrancy that Dario Argento brought to the original. It's an incredibly colourful horror film, and for the time, incredibly gory. It used to be very heavily cut, but is now released without any cuts, and, um, and is great. But this one is... It is... The story is the same, but it's a different beast. It's as you said. It's um, it's about the Red Army faction. It's about um, a divided Berlin. It's about Germany's past. It's about the evil that just kind of seeps in and is in the background of everyday things. So outside kind of, of the, the economy, rot, the underlying. It is there. Was, there was a real sense of disease and decay and rot in this film. And the first one is adrenaline. This one is more. Damp dread, <laughs> considering winter times, so everything's yeah very snowy and very wet. And yeah, yeah, it is about factions and has a political kind of undercurrent to it in terms of the the different factions of witches within the school. And there's the character of uh, Doctor Klemperer. Yes, indeed, played by Lutz Ebersdorf. That's right. I hadn't heard of before, but I thought he gave a very good performance and was quite surprised when I found out what he'd been in before because I watched it not actually rec- uh, you know, not actually realizing the things that he'd been in before. So really? wow, I had no idea it was that person. So I was like, oh, that's amazing. I'm so happy I didn't know that. I think you did know that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, he's a he's a psych- he's a psychiatrist. Who tries to approach a psychologist? Sorry, who tr- who's trying? Who tries to approach it from a, from a very logical? These are delusions; they can be treated, um, and has a sort of his own loss tied to tied to the war, um, and the idea of, of the dangers to an extent of trying to rationalise. Yes, it's, it's called the Marcos Academy, isn't it? The Mar- yes, of course it is. Sorry, it's um, Elena Marcos. That's right. It's half as twelve. It's fine. It's actually ten to one now. It's fine. Yes, and it's uh, it is about um, yeah the way to rationalise things in a world that is going mad, and also a rejection of yeah, tradition and superstition, and but that is always underlying. And there's a slight element of a detective story in here as well with Mia Goth, who was also in A Cure for Wellness, which was another long horror film that was also two and a half hours but wasn't as good as this. Mm. Um, She kind of plays the sleuth in this, the same way that the Sara character does a little bit in the original Suspiria. Yeah, it does kind of have the same DNA. There's The structure's kind of similar, but this adds another hour onto the original and goes into other directions, basically. It doesn't feel like it drags. No, 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 that's the thing is that I... I mean, the first hour especially for me just flew by. And well, there's I, a lot of setup, but it is, and there's things in there that are just about atmosphere and, and texture and, and texture and like a burgeoning sexuality and an eroticism around the dance and dance itself being like an incantation of things. Again, you do kind of get the fever in there as well. But and uh, uh, one fairly early on scene of some pretty horrific violence. Well, it's kind of like a magical violence, isn't yeah. it? It's um, magically inflicted voodoo dance. Which actually really is the only thing in there until until the end when it until goes crazy. And it was actually the climax that I thought it kind of wobbled. It, it went into Grindhouse and Splatter and I thought it had such a delicate and well-judged atmosphere up until that point. And then at the end I thought, well, you kind of tipped your hand on this a little bit. But actually, strangely enough, the climax this reminded me a bit of Climax, the new Gaspar Noé film. Oh, right, which I haven't seen, which I do need to see. In terms of like the the the, the neon blood red, as you say, yeah, adrenalized, adrenalized, you know, which is the word that you've been using to describe the Argento film. I think also applies to the climax of this. It does, but I thought that the sort of hyper real. 
Yeah, but I thought that this film, the ending looked like it was shot by the special effects team rather than by the director, because it just seemed to be one of those things where they lit it so that you would see the special effects, but it wasn't lit in a particularly interesting way. It was actually shot, I thought, in quite a flat way. I was talking to Sam Ashurst, uh, who does the Arrow podcast, which you should all listen to, it's very good, Um, and he wasn't as positive about the film as I was, and he said that he actually thought that there were some parts of that end sequence that seemed to be shot as inserts, just so you kind of knew who was doing what. So you got more continuity. I think he was thinking that it just added a bit more coherence when they, Mm. you know, watched it back and thought, oh no, we kind of need to say who's doing what, and... And what's happening to who? And this obviously, I, obviously a complaint that will only that only apply just to one film in this. Uh, yes, that's right. It's, uh, but I actually thought that the moments he's talking about, I thought, seemed to remind me a little bit of the political filmmaking of the 1970s. But again, I, I think that that again, whole, what doesn't? I think, yeah, but I think that that whole end sequence is a bit of a misstep and actually brings the film down from being five stars for me. But there is an epilogue that I thought did bring it back and I thought the epilogue was really interesting, witches are always associated with evil, but there was an element to witchcraft that they were healers and the fact that they were often accused of being witches because medicine was a man's game and they were putting crazy herbs and poultices and... Yeah, that's right. So therefore they were being branded witches and I liked the fact that the film also had an element the witches were actual healers as well. And uh, yeah, I thought there was well, lots of I, I think the, fi- yeah, the film's take on witches, as far as I know, is that fundamentally the abilities they have, again, it's, 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 how, it's how they practice and the idea they've been corrupted. And again, this, again the, the underlying corruption to everything and that all these good intentions and, and, and potential had, been, had gone awry. Yes, I think you're right. I think the whole thing is about how ultimately those in power will do really bad things because they think they're acting for the best intentions of everybody. And when you've got the Berlin Wall... For the greater Wall, good. Yes, indeed. And when you've got the Berlin Wall outside of your dance academy and what was happening in the East, which was all about, we know exactly what is best for you, so therefore we will do this and you won't have any chance to go against us and we'll make damn sure of that. Power corrupting, absolutely, yes. I think that does tie into this film. There aren't a lot of men in the film and their weapon there are of about choice... three, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. And their weapon of choice, and the witch's weapon of choice, is a curved blade. It's not phallic. It's actually quite feminine. And I thought, well, this, yeah, there's just some really, really good stuff going on in here. And there's a it's moment... Like, it's basically like a meat hook, isn't it? It is. Because it's not it sharp. Has... It's, it just tapers to a, to a point. That's right, yeah. And they literally do get their hooks into people. They bewitch them, don't they? And there's a really, really great moment of bewitchment in the film, again, that we won't spoil, but there's a couple of cops who investigate, and there's a very creepy moment when you see what's happened during the investigation of the school. It was very good. Chloe Grace Moretz is in it for a few minutes. She has basically the prologue, doesn't she? Tom York's score I thought was very good. It's um, it's very lyrical and acoustic whereas anyone who knows the original Suspiria knows the Goblin score is um, mm. is very electronic and rocky and bombastic and Again, as Adrian, who's getting a lot of shout-outs. But he did put it very, very well when... God, why didn't you do a podcast with Adrian? Then? Yes, indeed. Why didn't you just marry Adrian? <laughs> when we saw the original Suspiria at the LFF last year, he hadn't seen it for a while and didn't know it as well as I did. And he made the point that the soundtrack in the original Suspiria is like someone next to you going, oh, it's going to get scary in a minute, because it literally does this go... <laughs>
thing that I like about this, I thought he is making a film that he clearly, or he's remaking a film that he clearly loves, and he knows he can't ape that same atmosphere and that same sensation, so therefore he's going in a very, very different direction. And I think emerging with a surprisingly good film. Actually, I, I think it's a pretty great film, apart from that ending. Anything more to say about Suspiria? No, it's, I think I think you've pretty much done it justice. Uh, <laughs> given how, how how prepared you were to be down on it, I mean, you were. I mean, I kind of went in. I, I'm not going to say with a more open. I know because you went in with a fairly open mind, but I think I went in without. I mean, I think I think the originals is a, is a classic, but I don't have the the early attachment to it that you do. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's, and uh, um, Guadagnino clearly has because it was one of his. Was, he used to watch it. I think he watched it as a teenager. Yeah, indeed. And that's kind of what fed through to this. I think that's the thing is that the original. I mean, now you just have to read the reviews on Amazon to see how the original Suspiria is not loved by everyone. And lots of people said this was awful. I sent it back. It isn't even a horror film. It's just silly nonsense. I thought, wow, because I remember during the eighties when this was just a film that was said with hushed tones because there wasn't another horror film like this. It was so so kind of singular in what it achieved and what he achieved with the visuals, what he achieved with the soundtrack, what he achieved with the atmosphere. For a certain generation, I think I am the last generation that will that will kind of look at this and say this is a masterpiece, which is a shame. But there you go. Time always moves on, um, and as it moves on, it brings to our door fresh things to enjoy, like Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald. So let's see what the IMDb has to say about Fantastic Beasts: The Crimes of Grindelwald. And I'm doing this not just out of laziness, but for a very specific reason. Hmm. Okay, the second instalment of the Fantastic Beasts series set in J.K. Rowling's Wizarding World featuring the adventures of Magizoologist Newt Scamander. Okay, so there is nothing about the plot in there. No detail. Which, in a way, I think is quite telling because there's a lot of plot in this film that gets in the way of telling the story I think the basic plot of this film is that Johnny Depp plays Grindelwald who is Dark Wizard the big Dark Wizard from the end of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them who was uh, disguising himself as Colin Farrell even though that makes no sense on many levels Fair enough. I think you're right. Basically, he wants to control the wizarding world so that he can then rule the world and ordinary people will be a... Second-class citizens and... Well, will be like a slave. labour, yeah. Yeah, will be suburban, as he puts it. Yes, will be a slave race to the superior race of wizards. And there are people who are trying to stop him doing that. That is the main story that you think is going to be told in this film but actually there is a lot of plot and a lot of characters that get in the way of that there's a lot to do with the past and lots of people's past and lots of flashbacks to uh, to when characters were younger lots and of exposition largely involving characters either that we've just met or that we haven't met and and that's the thing is that i was watching this thinking i read all the harry potter books i've seen all the harry potter films i've seen the first fantastic beast film and I got a bit confused as to who we were seeing and why we were seeing. I thought we were supposed to know who everyone was, and I was just forgetting who some of these people were. But, yeah, so there were some times I was like, were they in the original Harry Potter, and or are they the mum of someone from the original Harry Potter, and I'm supposed to know why this is really important that we're spending a lot of time going into their backstory? And the Wizarding World is weirdly incestuous. Because the idea that all these old, you know, magical families are essentially connected but I think that's the kind of thing that you 
have with all these different franchises. That's kind of like yeah. Star Wars. Wow, so is there another family here apart from the Skywalkers that do anything important in this universe? And I think there's a lot of fan service in there where it's like, oh, that's that person from that, and that will then tie into that. Ooh. One thing I do like about the Fantastic Beasts series as prequels is that it's not like the Star Trek prequels, Star, Star Trek prequels, Star Wars prequels, <laughs> God says what time it is, um, by which you know essentially where everyone ends up. Because these characters, we know, we know, we know a couple of them, but we don't know the details of this particular event because it's not well documented and it doesn't feed directly into the narrative of Harry Potter. Yeah, because when this film ended, I thought, okay, I've got a lot of questions for Rob. And when I was asking them, he was saying, oh, yeah, we don't know that, and we don't know that, and we don't know that. I know, yeah, there are a few things it sets up. I mean, one of my main complaints is that this does feel like a chapter two. This does feel like a moving moving the plot along. It did, I mean, I did like it more than Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which I just thought didn't ever really get going. This is a film that, even though in the first 45 minutes I did have a couple of um, long blinks... Yeah, unlike Suspiria, this takes a while to get going. It does, it really does. Even though it rattles along. Well, a lot of stuff happens. Again, it's one of these films where a lot of stuff happens. But that story that we... Sorry, the plot thread that we told you about, Johnny Depp wanting to take over the world doesn't really get returned to until the final act. There are various mysteries and artefacts and... Yeah, so Eddie Redmayne is Newt Scamander and he is... A bit of a wet. He's a bit of a wet and is pining for... After Tina. The thing is, I don't even remember them being being particularly romantic in the first film. I might just be forgetting that. Well, I thought because, yeah, so he's after Tina, who's played by... um, Catherine Catherine Waterston. And... It seemed to me that at the end of the first film, they couldn't be together, but they did love each other. And in this one, there's been this accidental story that he's getting engaged in this wizarding magazine. And, and it's she... actually his brother, Theseus, who's, who's now engaged to later Lestrange, who's played by Zoe Kravitz. And... But that's like, but it's like, well, why didn't she just send him an owl saying, what's all this about you getting engaged? Why didn't she just go through one of the flues and go over there and say, and it's like, I thought we were a thing. Why did he move back to London? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, he, he's not allowed to leave, is he? Because of because uh, he keeps breaking the wizarding code, so he's not allowed to travel abroad. There's lots of, yeah, lots of moving parts, lots of characters. Yeah, so Lita Lestrange, she's got a whole backstory to why she is how she is. And I actually thought, thought that Zoe Kravitz was very good. I thought... Actually, her story, by the time you get to the end of it, I thought did actually have quite an emotional punch to it. More than the fact that Ezra Miller, as Credence Barebone, who seems to be the favourite, um, or seems to be the focal point that Grindelwald wants to get together with because he can see something in this young lad. But Ezra Miller, I thought, well, you are clearly supposed to be someone here who is going to do something either terrible or something amazing but your story just keeps disappearing into the background when we're dealing with Lita Lestrange or we've got Dumbledore played by Jude Law who I thought actually was very good and there's lots of lots of things that are vying for attention here and and none of them really feel complete. I mean, there are a couple of little mini character arcs in there. You know, Newt starts the film like, "Oh, I don't, I don't pick sides." By the end of it, he picks a side, which is the side that's not trying to murder everyone. Yeah, surprisingly, uh, there's the Jacob Kowalski character, who's kind of the Ron, his best mate, who's in a relationship now with Queenie, who's the sister of Tina, who's played by Alison Sudol, who's kind of the, you'd say, the lunar of this, who's a bit scatty and she can read people's minds and they want to be together, but there are anti, like, kind of anti-miscegenation laws preventing wizards from... Which I don't remember being a thing in the first film. I could be forgetting again. I think it is in the first film. I think there is something in the essay that you can't can't do that. Um, Jacob 
is played by Dan Fogler, who again I think is he's good, but he seems to disappear for quite a lot of the film. And there's one scene towards the end when he pops up, and I thought I can't even remember you entering this scene, and then you're just there. And, and there were weird, there is so much that's just clearly been set up for the future film, like the fact there's a character played by Claudio Kim called Nagini, who who's stranger who turns into a snake, and where do we happen to know a snake called Nagini? Oh, could she be Voldemort's pet and final Horcrux? It's like, so this character is basically just there to kind of... She doesn't really get anything to do in the film other than tell Greedence, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. And she's kind of just put in there as a placeholder until the film, until the franchise decides they need her. Yeah, there are lots of different things. There's Poppy Corby Tooch, who was born in France. Tuesh apparently is is how you say her her last name. So Corby Tuesh. She, yeah, good and looked really striking, but again didn't have much to do. And it just seemed that a lot of Grindelwald's gang didn't have much to do. And Grindelwald often looked a bit creepy. And Grindelwald just it's just Johnny Depp in it for about seven minutes. I think he's not in this film very he's much. He's in it for longer than that. Maybe quarter of an hour. You think so? Okay, right. Because he, he gets a speech. He does, yeah. He has a couple of speeches. There's a few scenes. And he wasn't, I mean, you know, uh, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Well, where do you start with Johnny Depp recently? He's done so many things that have been rather shitty that it's like a surprise that they kept him in this film and didn't place him using magic with an actor who isn't quite as um, compromised, shall we say, by his own decisions. Again, that's one of the big things about the end of the first film. It's only as, oh... Colin Farrell, who we are th- assuming is an acolyte of Grindelwald, actually turns out to be Johnny Depp, who is Grindelwald, even though there are so many questions surrounding that. Yes, you're right. I actually thought I was going to dislike Johnny Depp more than I did in this film. I thought he was He's fine. He was adequate being a cunt. <laughs> so, but, yeah, and the, <laughs> which is like you. Know, Method acting. A role has been method acting for a while. And you, it's, again, it's the say. makeup, and you know the fact that apparently it was Depp's idea that he had, that Grindelwald have heterochromia. Right, um, because he's like, he, I, I saw him as like two almost, almost as though he were two separate people. It's like, Johnny, have you tried acting? Yes, have you tried acting, my dear? And another thing about this film is that so David Yates is a director who is journeyman director David Yates. Yes, tab A into slot B. Let's just get these scenes put into an order he where can't the story shoot fight scenes or action scenes. He can't shoot action there, scenes. There are, there are things. There are scenes in this, including the opening kind of midair flying carriage jail breakout which is not a spot is in the trailer and, yep. and, and a couple of later ones that would really benefit from well A a bit of geography so you're actually able to keep track of everything that's going on and B but that of course would take time and time but time would allow them to set up B which is suspense absolutely that's the thing with the opening scene I thought everything's moving very very quickly you aren't allowed to really take anything in even though, yes, you're just flying through the sky, you're not setting up the space of this carriage very well. There's like an escort on broomsticks. Who's kind of just dispatched very, almost off screen. They are. That's like, I was thinking, well, one of the broomstick guys is going to get involved in this. Because there are some shots in that that are really striking. When they first start flying out and all the guys are on their broomsticks and just you know, zip along after them, I thought, yeah, I really do like this sort of thing. But you're right, when it gets into the mechanics of constructing a good action scene, David Yates just isn't the guy for the job. And the fact that he just has got the Harry Potter gig now with all these films, it's like, I, we just need to give it to a director who's who can just do this a bit better. And, and, it's, and it's a shame because a lot of the char- I think a lot of the character beats in the film work. 
I mean, the relationship, uh, the chemistry between Eddie Redmayne and Catherine Waterston is really sweet. Mm-hmm. And there are, there are a couple of scenes between them and between um, uh, Dan Fogler and Alison Sudol. Yep. And, you know, again, it's the central, it's the central, in this case, four, instead of the central trio from Harry Potter. And that's all really nice. And I, and I think um, Jude Law gives a good performance. Jude yeah, Law, I think, is great. Yeah, he's, you know, he's got the kind of gentle charm that, that, my, that um, Richard Harris's Dumbledore, as well as that habit of leading in and whispering very intimately. Yes. Yeah, it, it felt like occasionally it was like, oh, you'll definitely pick that up as like a little grace note. With a touch more sort of callowness and the young man's. You do get the sense that he is a young Dumbledore. And either Richard Harris or Michael Gambon. And I think, well, actually, that's quite a feat to pull off. And I do like the fact that you get to see him teaching a class as well. And he's, of course, being very charming and personable as he's also dispensing his wisdom. And clearly the favourite teacher of all the students. And, yeah, I just thought, yes, I really do get a sense that you are a young Dumbledore. And actually, Jude Lord, this is probably your best performance in... Well, I can't even remember a performance of, in that I liked as much as this one. Maybe in Rotopedition when he played that hitman, I thought he was very good. I thought he was great. He was great in Gattaca. And talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah, they were both before. Oh, so you're saying since. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, sorry, since as opposed to... I'm limited, sure he's been in something else. Limited um, to... But yeah, I thought he was But he's in Captain Marvel that's coming up. Cool. He was good. I quite liked him in Spy. He was the Bond yes, figure. Yes, he was good in Spy, yes. Dom Hemingway? No. Didn't, didn't like him, Dom Hemingway? <laughs> no, no. Didn't like him in Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows? Oh, of course, yes, actually. He is a good Dr. Watson. Yes. Or, or is was... the second Tony in The Imaginary of Dr. Parnassus? Yeah, I was writing that. The Holiday? All right. <laughs> Lemony yes. Snicket's a series of unfortunate events. Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. There will be a law against you reading, a Jude law against you reading Wikipedia. So, yes, all that said... I have to admit that I would be lying if I said I didn't like this film. And I'm surprised by that because I thought I was going to be as dismissive of it as I was about the first Fantastic Beast. But, and this sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, but I thought the world they created in this film was really quite marvellous. The set design and the costume design and the photorealistic special effects. And and, some, and again, genuinely, some of the ideas behind... Absolutely. There is a moment... I don't want to spoil it, but there is a moment when Grindelwald sends out a signal that he wants all of his acolytes and followers to, to gather in Paris. And the way that the signal is sent out and what it actually is, I thought, that is just a really great idea. There's another moment when Newt is being tailed by someone, so casts a wind spell on them, and he's being blown down the street and is holding his umbrella against the wind, but he's the only person being blown, and everyone's just kind of walking by looking at him, like, what's happening there? And again, it's like, yeah, that's great. Just the, the film is very ideas. unclear, as, I think, as, as you mentioned on the train on the way back, in terms of who sees what, and... There were times when I was thinking, hang on a sec, are these ordinary people who don't seem to be noticing these weird things going on around them? Because they've also, but they seem to have walked into like a magical parallel dimension that also that exists beside this world. So they're in the world, but they seem to be on like a different plane because they've walked into a statue. But they're doing things that if you did know magic and you were a wizard, you would be interested in. But everyone just seems to be walking by oblivious to what they're doing. So I thought that was a little bit confused. Didn't seem to set out the rules very well. But well, that said, I did, it's, it's, I did enjoy yeah, it. It's, it's a, it uh, as, as I think Alan Moore says in uh, one of his Leader at Story Gentlemen, it operates on poorly defined magical principles. It does. 
And I love Alan Moore, but I do think that's just a bit mean spirit. Well, it's kind of like your lazy point score. It's like these are kids' books. But that's the thing, you see, is that these are kids' books. Mumbo Jumbo. It's like. But it's also one of those things where these are kids' books, but as you said, this is a film that has magical rape and child death in it. And. Multiple child death. Multiple child death. Not like like children, a bunch of children die, but like separate instances of child death where. It's actually a moment where it's like, oh, a child has just died. You're not a tween, a very young child on both occasions. And normally I'm a bit kind of funny about that sort of thing. I thought this, I hate the beginning of Pirates of the Caribbean 3 when they hang that kid. This I thought, I was surprised by the first one that thought, well, you're setting up your baddie. The second child death in this Harry Potter film was, or, or this Harry Potter universe film, I thought actually it was like a fable or like a dark fairy story. It was a mistake that someone had made and they'd made it in a moment of selfishness and... It haunted them. And it haunted them. And I actually thought that was quite a powerfully done moment because it was told like a fairy story. I thought that was actually very good. Yeah, the magical rape moment. Um, it's a plot point that J.K. Rowling's used before in, because uh, in uh, the Harry Potter it's how Voldemort was, con- was conceived it's how Tom Marvolo Riddle was born oh really uh, expe- I remember that except in his case it was his fa- uh, his father who was bewitched I think right so yeah yeah, there was a character who was the product of her mother being put under a spell and then raped that is all suggested but it's definitely what happens <laughs> and I was actually thinking well is this a reference to France's colonial past? Is it a reference to Oh yeah, the film, the film is largely set in Paris. In the, yes, indeed, yeah, yeah, sorry, the film is largely set in Paris. Is this a reference to just colonialism and to racism in general? And and sort of um, the patriarchy. And, and the patriarchy. And it was all these things where I was thinking, even if that's the case and it is that, it just seems a bit too heavy for a Harry Potter universe film. And Wizarding Worlds, Rob. Wizarding Worlds. Wizarding World, yes. That's fine. Is it World or Worlds? World. World, yes. Singular. Yeah, Wizarding World, whatever. Harry Potterverse. And yeah, I just thought, I don't know really what you're trying to do with this, JK. I think you've a few big themes in here. It and does that's... feel like nobody was allowed to touch her script. And it She's also... the only credited writer on it. That's right, yeah. And it's also one of those things where there is a difference between writing a good book and writing a good screenplay and I don't think that this film or the previous film have any kind of pacing that works. There are scenes of dramatised exposition. Yeah, but it's also one of those things where there just isn't a pace to these films. A lot of things happen but they happen in quite a disjointed way. The first 45 minutes of this film I was thinking I just don't see how any of this really flows together and there are certain moments where things huge things just, just happen. There's quite a fantastic and fantastically realised lion creature in this film that's like something from a Studio Ghibli film. It's amazing. It needed a better entrance than the one that's given in the film. Hello. Where it is just literally plonked into the shot and it's like, what an amazing creature that is. What an amazing, fantastic beast. The imagination for the creatures in this and just for the world in general, I just... And Newt's menagerie is, again, is really impressive even if I don't quite understand the principle by which it exists. But that's, I think that's fine. It's like, yeah, he has a magical world in his suitcase. That's fine. I think that's fine. That's like the line wish in the wardrobe. But I was thinking, you have spent so much time creating these wonderful creatures, but then you just kind of plonk them into the shot and they need more of an entrance. They need more of an intro. And there are lots of things that happen and they happen very, very quickly. Is this a limitation of the world you've created because people can just appear and evaporate very quickly? So therefore there's no time Disapparate. to... Disapparate. 
disapparates. So there's no time to build that suspense because people just appear and then vanish. There must be a way to do that though, because a lot. I think well, a you lot just of say, this has been you just say characters squandered. can't disapparate here because you know within within the ministry. Yeah, indeed, definitely. It's a way to yeah. It's one of the issues when the principles of your world aren't perhaps as clearly defined as they could be, which you know again it's difficult. If you're not writing a book, isn't it? You can't just stick a line in being like, and this is a rule. But I think you're right, though. I think you can be. Yeah, it's one of those things where someone could try to disapparate and someone says, not in this room with the lead lining of, <laughs> of magic we've got around it or something like that. But just something that says, you can't do that there. So therefore, you need to think your way out of this. There is going to be suspense while you How do that. How do property prices work in the wizarding world given that people can apparate? Because presumably you wouldn't have to live close. It's teleportation, essentially, yeah, yeah. except you're presumably not breaking yourself down. It doesn't work on scientific principles, so it's not no. technically suicide. <laughs> so, long thing about that. Um, so, so, presumably people don't need to live close to work, or don't actually need to live close to anything. As in, like, why would anybody live in the city when you could live in the countryside, pay presumably nothing, and just apparate in every day? I suppose there are some people that just want to live in the hustle and bustle. Because Ron's family live in the middle of nowhere, don't yeah, they? Yeah, in the borough, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, you just want to live in the hustle and bustle. And uh, But I wonder what the property prices are in the wizarding world. If they are cheaper, or if you, you could just magic up some money, couldn't you? And then say, there you go, there's that money. Or you could just bewitch a landlord and say, I live here now. But you're going to do all the repairs and stuff like that. And you will pay me to live here. To be ace to be a wizard, I would I would squander and misuse my powers so badly. I would. Well, it just feels like I like you wouldn't really need to operate with the wizarding world that frequently. Like let's say you know you want to go get something magical, obviously you'd have to have some galleons in your account. But for hmm. the most part, if you were just happy to operate in the Muggle world, you wave you wave your wand and you go, oh, I've got I've got oh, it's an extra ten grand in my bank account. That'll look like a deposit. That's fine as long as you were reasonably canny with it. You could just, oh, fine, I, back in the wizard world, maybe I'm a bit of a loser, but in muggle world, as long as I'm canny, I can live any life I want to live. Live very, very comfortably indeed. That's right, I think we, that's... In all with that is, we are, you know, we are, speaking, fairly, so, a, a, selfishly, and B, limitedly, it's like, I just don't, I just want to be able to buy some DVDs. Yeah, I just, I just want free stuff. What can I have for free? It's like, but if you've got magic and you control the elements, wouldn't you do that to make sure there are no natural disasters and that we can cure world hunger by growing in famine areas. And, yeah, could do that. Yep, yeah, should do that probably, shouldn't I? It's like, um, it's like the Spider-Man comic <laughs> image where it's like, there's the guy, the, the, the villain with the head of the, te- with the pterodactyl head. And Spider-Man's like, my God, this gene splicing technology is amazing. You know, you could use it to cure cancer. And the guy's like, no, I want to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's all, it's different strokes for different folks, I suppose. Isn't it? I mean, that's the principle here. Elegantly put. Yeah, the thing about this film, I think, is the script. That is the script and the direction. Everyone else is doing a very, very good job. Set designer, costume designer. The actors. The cinematography. Everything about it is really good. It's just, it doesn't have a compelling drive to the story. I was watching it thinking, just think if Lawrence Kasdan had written this. Or even if someone like Joss Whedon had got it and said, okay, you've got a really, really good idea here. Now let's put some drive into it. Oh, actually, shit. William Goldman. Oh, of course, yes. Um, yes, William Goldman passed today as well. And another one of the great screenwriters. So Marathon Man, Butch, Butch Cassidy, Cassidy, The Sting, The Princess Bride. He, he adapted Misery as well, didn't he? That was a great adaptation because he realised that the film had to be a black comedy. It couldn't be as dark as the book. The book is very dark. Uh, yeah, so... And All the President's Men. Yes, of course he did, yes. 
Yeah, he was quite good at his job, wasn't he? He would have been able to punch this up into shape. I just think that, like she needed an editor for her later Harry Potter books, she needs another scriptwriter for this to say, these. this is really good. Some of the dialogue, I think, is great. Some of the emotional beats, I thought, just worked wonderfully. But it just didn't have a proper drive, and it was very, very choppy, particularly in that first 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, you also wonder if there'd been a way, if there was a way to. I mean, since so much of it took place literally in the past, obviously, it's difficult to set up. But yeah, the, the resorting to, and another flashback. I know that the original Harry Potter books were all about the mystery that had to be solved, but this was one where it's like, yes, we are going to have another flashback because we have mystery upon mystery upon intrigue upon intrigue. And I found it a little bit confusing because I was thinking, are these people that I just can't remember who they are and I should know what the mystery is behind this? But actually, it wasn't. No. Which might mean, actually, that if I was to watch it again, I would like it more in terms of its plotting. But it just didn't seem to have a drive to it. But it's, it also, of course... The final sorry. revelation of the film, which we won't spoil, is a bit soapy. And I'm still not entirely sure I understand what happened in that. And you kind of explained it to me, but... I don't entirely understand what happened because there are two pieces of evidence, well, two things pulling in very different directions. One which is established, or aware of the established canon, and the other is that a certain thing happens that says, oh, actually, no, this might be real. Yeah, I, there is a revelation for a central character, and I still am not entirely sure what it means. And I ask you, and thinking that it would be something that would have already been established, but it isn't. But it wasn't like a, oh, whilst that means that, I'm just a bit confused about it. It's like the end of Solo. It's like, Aaron said, so Darth Maul's alive. That's a spoiler for Solo. (laughs) It's been out for a few months, it's fine. Again, I could be completely mistaken, but I'm 99% sure that that is not set up in any way. Right. Well, we're not going to tell you what the end is, so uh, you'll have to go and see it yourselves. Just hear you all now going, oh, just either tell us the end or get on to something else. What I will get on to is, just go back to the costume design, everyone looked amazing in this. And, and the costume did have a real sense that this was a real world. I thought that the way that people were dressed really conveyed this as being a place and a certain time. I could just imagine them getting dressed into these clothes and things like that and taking them off at the end of the day and things. I thought, yeah, you've just created such a wonderful world here that I'm really having fun looking at. You just need to get a proper script into one of these movies. But at the end of the film, I was thinking, yep, I am looking forward to the next one. Another two years. Two years. Yeah. So it'll be good to see where the story goes next. It kind of suggests that there's going to be quite a battle coming. Speaking of which, there is a moment in this film that visually references World War Two and has imagery of people walking onto a train, like a cattle train. And it's very subtle and quick. And but I just think, can we stop using the Holocaust in blockbuster films, please? Because the Holocaust is too awful. It's to insurmountable put human tragedy. It can't just be a detail in your big, silly... Wizarding Harry Potter film. Or big, silly... Um, Superhero film. Absolutely, yes. We, I mean, that scene in X-Men Apocalypse was just awful when they go to Auschwitz. So bad. I mean, luckily that's the worst thing that ever happened to the X-Men franchise. What was that? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I don't think we had the answers. Who directed X-Men Apocalypse? Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Brian Singer, who was kicked off of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, wasn't he? And Which we, ne- we don't think we ever talked about, Pod, did we? It's no, because I haven't seen it yet. But you saw oh, it, yeah, you? It's, it's a very odd film. That would be another two hours to talk about it. There's right. a, lot, a lot to dissect. <laughs> From what I've heard, you can't really see that a director was replaced 
Dexter Fletcher, who I think is going to become a much bigger director at some point. He will get a Marvel film at some point, and I think he will prove himself to be a good mainstream director. I also hear that it's very coy about Freddie Mercury's sexuality and how wild his sexuality was. Um, there are a couple of allusions to actually, um, and it fucks with the timeline apparently as well. He'd be um, Dexter Fletcher would be a good choice to adapt um, Captain Britain. Yeah, that would be good. So yeah, so we've strayed off of the wizarding. Oh, we've circled back round to Stanley and Marvel. We have indeed. That was planned. No one believes that. Um, <laughs> it's all planned. It's all planned. Even when it isn't. That's right. So is there anything else to say about Fantastic Beasts other than I enjoyed it more than I thought I did. I thought the opening was very, very choppy. I had a couple of long blinks, but by the end I was thinking, yes, I am enjoying this and I want to see the next one. Yeah, I want to spend more time in this world with these characters, even if not necessarily doing the things they're doing. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see if she does do the next film with a screenwriter because the first film was written by her and someone else wasn't it no I think it was just her was it, was it just I'm her I'm pretty sure it was just her I'm sure you're right let's have a look but yes I'm sure you're right and David Yates I think it's, uh, it's like oh can we just not get yep you're absolutely right Soul writer I just think at some point they need to get another director in it would be great if Alfonso Cuaron came on to do the third movie like he did with Harry Potter or that is the best movie or what's Guillermo del Toro up to at the moment Absolutely. It's like, yeah, she likes these guys. It's like, why have you got Journeyman David Yates to do your films when you could have a visionary doing your films? So, yeah. Journeyman is safe. But it will be interesting to see what it does because the first Fantastic Beasts did okay, but did less money than Oz the Great and Powerful. So, there's always that. This one, I think, I think that the audience left on a bit of a high. It does have an ending that does kind of tease that the next one's going to be really, really big. Let me make my picture for number three. I'm not going to give it a subtitle, but Fantastic Beast 3, directed by Luca Guadagnino. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely watch that. Get Tilda Swinton and Dakota Johnson in there too, and I think you would have quite the movie. Mm, Do that. (laughs) Do that, Warners and J.K. Rowling. Two people sitting in a study have said, do that and ignore all of the millions that you've got that you've got by doing what you want to do. Yes, we will see. But I think that's it, really, isn't it? It's, I think that's uh, think we've... Uh... It is 25 to 2 in the morning. So thank you for listening. And what are we talking about? I think the next one, we've got a recording that's penciled in for the 3rd of December, which I've just got as Xmas Pod. Oh, we're going to talk about Christmas films. We'll talk about Christmas films. And probably too early to do an end-of-year roundup, isn't it? Because we won't have seen things like Mortal Engines Beautiful and Boy. Mary Poppins and Aquaman, one that you're looking forward I to. I could not care less about that film. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Because the trailer, it doesn't look bad. And some of it, I think, looks quite good. I just don't care about an, uh, about an Aquaman film. And not as much as Mortal Engines, which... I'm cautiously optimistic about, but you've read the book. Love the book as a kid. I've got my own mental image. Who knows? I may be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> well, it's two hours, which I'm quite pleased about because you kind of think, oh, this is going to be like a punishingly long film, but no, it's apparently very swift. The only thing is, I'm thinking, is it all just going to be action with no character? But we'll see. But yes, yeah, so we can't do. We'll have to do an end of year pod a bit later in December. But yes, we will be talking about Christmas movies. So that'll be good. So we'll be eating mince pies and drinking mulled wine and talking about our favourite Christmas movies. So, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for talking until 22 in the morning, Rob. Oh, thank you for talking with me. And we will magically appear in your ears again very soon. Magically. Hey, fellas. Hey, wait, where are you going? 
Hey, you were supposed to be my lift home. How will I get out of here? Hey, oh, gee, I've got so many more stories to tell. Oh, guys. Oh, gee.